Thank you, Father, for bringing us here by your grace. I pray for your people. I pray that tonight they will they will know better. They will know you better. They will they will comprehend you less, but they will apprehend you better. I pray that all the things I say tonight will be for your honor and for your glory. Holy Spirit, keep me from error. For the things that I talk about are beyond my comprehension. I pray that after we learn this doctrine, we will worship you in spirit and in truth. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Last time we were together, we were going through the doctrine of God. We've been going through the doctrine of God, or what we like to call the perfections of God. And last time we were together, we spoke... Anybody remember last time what we spoke about in, the doctrine of, in our doctrine of God little series? Without looking at your notes. Okay, so we spoke about the incomprehensibility of God. Uh, does everybody remember me speaking about divine incomprehensibility? Um, what, we, what we said in, in that talk was that God is incomprehensible. Now, when we say that God is incomprehensible, we're not saying that we can't know God, right? We can know God. And how can we know God? By what he's, what he's revealed to us, both by general revelation and special revelation. You heard a, a great uh, um, teaching on that by Brother Bobby. But he has, God has revealed himself and he has made himself known to us, right? But what we are saying in Divine Comprehensibility is we can't wrap our minds around God, we can know God, but even the things that we know about God, we can't fully comprehend them. As you remember, to comprehend a thing is to contain a thing, right? And to apprehend a thing, it is to grasp, to lay hold of. So I, I use the illustration, if a suspect is, is um, captured by a police officer, when the police officer arrests the suspect, the police officer then apprehends the suspect, lays hold of the suspect. But until the suspect is put behind bars and surrounded around, you know, walls where, where he can't escape and the key is thrown away, only until then the suspect has not been comprehended. Okay? So what we were saying when we speak about God is we cannot comprehend God. We can apprehend God. But we can't fully comprehend God. We only know God insofar as he has made himself known to us. Right. And you've been learning that um, on Sundays as well from Pastor Antonio, that everything we know about God is by his grace and mercy in revealing himself to us. So that's divine comprehensibility. Also, what I what we learned was we approach the we approach the doctrine of God, the study of God from the vantage point of mystery. OK, all of this is mysterious to us. Everything about God is mysterious to us. However, the things that we any, any, and even in the things that we know is mysterious to us. I mean, just think about the simple thing of the gospel. The gospel, as simple as it is to explain, it's deeply mysterious. Not, and it's mysterious on many levels. But for one, what the gospel says, that the eternal God, that the Father would send his eternal Son to become like his own and to die for rebellious people, and then in time he would send his Spirit, right, to indwell them, and then, you know... You, you know the rest, but, but that's incomprehensible to me. That's mysterious to me. Okay. So what we want to do is as we move along through our doctrine of God, um, we want to, we want to, we want to keep what we have learned from divine comprehensibility. We want to hold that and we want to carry that with us as we move along on these Wednesdays, but also as move, we move along on Sundays. Okay. Now, what we want to do tonight is we want to move from divine incomprehensibility and move to the doctrine of divine simplicity. OK, so we want to take what we know about God and, and his and, and him being incomprehensible. And we want to move that over to divine simplicity. Now, from the outset, um, 
let me say that most of what I'm going to say tonight, I do not comprehend. Most of what I'm going to say tonight, I do not comprehend. And none of you should say, oh, well, let's just leave now because I just gave you the definition of, comp- of what it means to comprehend. I, I cannot grasp this. I cannot fully wrap my mind around simplicity. And I don't expect you to. But what I do expect, and I think there's enough information for us to apprehend what this doctrine is saying. A lot of what I'm going to say tonight is going to challenge you to think, and a lot of it's going to sound very mysterious to you. Because the doctrine of divine simplicity rearranges everything we know about God. Everything we know about God. Now, when I say it's mysterious, it's not mysterious um, because we don't know. Again, it's mysterious because we can't fully comprehend. Prior to the 18th century, it would have been impossible to find a work of theology proper. And when I say theology proper, what I mean is the study of God. That's theology proper, the doctrine of God. It would have been impossible to find a work of theology proper that didn't give deep consideration to the doctrine of divine simplicity. The doctrine of divine simplicity, in fact, was step one in your doctrine of God classes. First, you learn divine incomprehensibility, and then you moved on to divine simplicity. The doctrine of divine simplicity is what regulated the grammar of theology proper for centuries. This was a starting block. This was meat and potatoes Christianity for 1,700 years. Whatever we know about God, this rule of God's simplicity cannot be violated. So however we think about God, whether that be his grace, his love, attributes, um, the Trinity, we have to, to take into account what the doctrine of divine simplicity says. Okay? In other words, God's simplicity is what stands behind every other doctrine about God. God's divine simplicity must be taken into consideration to everything we say about God. Now, throughout the centuries, many in church history have confessed this central non-negotiable. One um, of the early church fathers, um, Irenaeus of Lyon, said, He is simple, not composed of parts, Without structure, altogether like, and equal to himself alone. He is all mind, all spirit, all thought, all intelligence, all reason, all light, all foundation of every good. And this is the manner in which the religious and pious are accustomed to speak about God. I love that last part. This is the manner in which the religious and pious are accustomed to speak about God. What Arenaeus is saying is, Whoever knows theology knows about the doctrine of simplicity. It's a given. And mind you, Irenaeus is saying that in the second century, 189 AD. So very early in church history, the doctrine of divine simplicity was spoke about and was upheld. John Chrysostom said, for God is simple and a non-composite and without shape. For God is simple and non-composite without shape. Augustine said concerning divine simplicity, God is pure essence without accidents. And I'll, I'll break that up a little bit. Without accidents. Compared to him, all created being, and hear this, compared to God, all created being is non-being. Everything in God is God. Everything in God is God. He is his own wisdom, his own life. And I can quote men like John Owen, Francis Turretin, and Herman Bavinck, and they all view the doctrine of simplicity as essential to Christian orthodoxy. Friends, this doctrine is not a reformed doctrine. This is not a Catholic, I mean, this is not a Calvinistic doctrine. This is a Catholic doctrine. And when I say Catholic, I mean Catholic in that Nicene Creed sense, that, that universally um, held and, and, and confessed doctrine, okay? This is what Catholics believe. This is what some Lutherans believe. The Anglicans confess this in their 39 articles. Our confession confesses simplicity of God not once but twice. The, the 1689 Lenten Baptist Confession of Faith, chapter 2, paragraph 1 of God and the Holy Trinity says this, our Lord, our God is but one living and true God whose subsistence is in and of himself, Infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any himself. 
a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, and here is simplicity, parts or passions. Now, when our, if you ever read our confession, there's a break between body and parts. So what our confession is saying is God is not just without body, but he's without parts. And they're not, they're not just talking about material parts. They're not talking about arms and legs, but we'll get into that. Or passions. And we'll, if you haven't learned about the doctrine of divine impassibility, I recommend that you listen to Samuel Renahan's sermons when he came here. Um, and that will really help you out. Um, listen to the language of our forebears in chapter two, paragraph three. Therefore, but one God who is not to be divided in nature and being. Now, if you know what they're saying about nature and being, essentially what they're saying is um, God is not creaturely like us. You can't divide God's nature from his being. He is one with his nature. He is one with his being. Not like us. We can make distinctions between our nature and our being. That can't happen with God. And that's and, 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 and that's the heart of the doctrine. Um, that creator-creature distinction is at the heart of divine simplicity. If anything, divine simplicity uh, stretches out and shows that, that, that wide chasm that exists between us and God. Divine simplicity spotlights the creator-creature distinction by showing the absolute self-sufficiency of God. None of you are self-sufficient. Only God is self-sufficient, and I'll, I'll unpack that a little bit. Although the doctrine of divine simplicity has been regarded in the past as essential and foundational, m- many in our day simply view the doctrine simply as an early church relic. Louis Burkhoff in his systematic theology says this, In recent works on theology, the simplicity of God is seldom mentioned. The simplicity of God is seldom mentioned. Many theologians positively deny it, either because it it is regarded as as a purely metaphysical extraction or because, in their estimation, it conflicts with the doctrine of the Trinity. Friends, the interesting thing about that statement is Louis Perkoff said that 70 years ago. And it still hits home for today. It still has much relevance for today. Nowadays, we, we rarely hear of the doctrine of divine simplicity. Many seminaries don't touch this doctrine and rarely isn't mentioned in church or explained to the congregation. The simplicity of God has in recent years taken back seat to less complex and more easy to explain things about God, such as his sovereignty. Let's talk about God's sovereignty. Let's talk about God's love and his grace and his mercy. Now, those things are all fine. But what I'm saying is we need to get back to this. We need to get back to divine simplicity and what and what the early church were saying when they said that God is without parts. I take it that many of you haven't even heard of this doctrine. And it's not your fault because you were never taught this doctrine. I've never I've recently discovered this doctrine. The sad reality is many contemporary theologians, many of your favorite people that you love to listen to either deny simplicity or they try to they try to make simplicity less less harder to grasp. And in doing that, they make God something that he is not. So my objective tonight is to introduce this doctrine of God's simplicity. And and hopefully by the end of tonight, you'll leave here. Yes, challenged, somewhat confused, but deeply, deeply, deeply encouraged. Because this is an encouraging doctrine. This is a doctrine, guys, that we can rest our heads on at night. Divine simplicity is a doctrine that, that we, can, we can study and we can feel comfort by it. Okay? So I have three points. Number one is, what is divine simplicity? Number two, what is the biblical witness to divine simplicity? And number three, our comfort in divine and God's simplicity. Number one, what is divine simplicity? Number two, the biblical witness for divine simplicity. And number three, our comfort in God's simplicity. Um, before I begin, is anyone cold? Because it's very chilly up here. Um, so if you're cold, uh, and 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 I know, and I don't know if I should say this, but um, or. I know that when it's cold, especially coming from the church that I came from, when it was cold, I knocked out. 
Um, and the way I would do it, I would do it sneaky, but the only one that would know was Pastor Antonio. I would I'd be, just, I'd be like this. Um, so if I catch you, I'm, gonna, I'm going to uh, single you out. Um, so we're putting, the, we're putting the air down. What is the doctrine of divine simplicity? What is this doctrine? What are we saying when we say that God is simple? Better yet, what does our confession mean when they, when they say that God is without parts? What does that mean? Now, let me say at the outset, when we say God is simple, we're not saying that God is easy to understand. That's not what we're saying, okay? Now, God is easy to understand in and of himself. God can understand himself simply. We can't understand God simply. The way we come at God is from a complex view. Why? Because we can't think a simple thought about God. We always have to think thoughts about God that are complex because that's how he has revealed himself to us. Even though in his being, he is simple, right? However, the way he accommodates to us is in complexity. And, and that's what we have to understand. Um, and if you have been following Pastor Antonio on those Sunday sermons, he's been hitting that, that ad intra, ad extra motif. And if you want to know more about that, ask me after. Um, the basic claim of divine simplicity is this. So if you're writing it down, what is simplicity? This is the basic claim. There is nothing in God that causes God to be God. There is nothing in God that causes God to be God. There is nothing in God that causes God to be God. In other words, there is nothing in God, and hear this, that is less than the totality of his divinity. There is nothing in God that is less than a totality of his divinity. That's why, that's why we say all that is in God is God. All that is in God is God. Let me bring a little bit more home, and I'm going to unpack this too, but everything in you is not human, okay? Everything in you is not essential to your humanity. Your hair, your, you having black hair is not essential to you being human, you being five foot eight is not essential to you being human. A kangaroo could be five foot eight. Okay? You can change your hair color from black to red, and that wouldn't change your essence. And I'll, I'll unpack that more. But what we're saying with God is there is nothing in God that causes God to be God. All that is in God is God. All that is in God is God. Which means this, that God is not made up of parts. If everything, in, if everything in God is God, that means that God is not made up of parts. That is why our confession says God is not made up of body, comma, parts. Now, what is a part? When we say that all that is in God is God, if we say that, um, that there is nothing in God that is less than the totality of his divinity, if we say that God is not made up of parts, what is a part? A part is anything in a subject that's less than the whole, and without it, the subject will be different than what it is. So a part is anything in a subject that's less than the subject, but if that subject didn't have that part, it would be different without it. Does that make sense? Um, so parts give actuality to a whole. Parts give something to the whole that the whole didn't have or the whole doesn't have without that part. A part, a part is less than the whole and without the part, the subject that has the part would be different than what it is. So subjects need parts to exist as it is. Parts give it something. A part would, a part contributes something to your being that you don't have without the part. And I'm going to unpack that statement throughout this point, okay? So I'm not just going to leave you uh, high and dry. Um, now, when we say parts, parts have distinctions in them, okay? There's distinctions in parts. There's essential parts, and then there's accidental parts, okay? Essential parts, accidental parts. You have essential parts, but also you have in you accidental parts. Now, what are essential parts? 
A central part can be your heart, right? You, everyone needs their heart, right? Okay. Um, an essential part is your liver. Your liver goes out, uh, you're pretty much done. Um, those are, those are material, material parts, but also in addition to those material parts, there's immaterial, immaterial essential parts that you need, such as, and the, and the two basic um, essential parts that you need are essence and existence. You need your essence and you need your existence. If you have, don't have those two, you are not the total package, Okay. So those are those are essential parts. You want to think of essential parts as the things that you need in order for you to be the things that you need in order for you to be. Now, in addition to essential parts, we have accidental parts. You have accidental parts. Now, the accidental parts are the color of your hair. Your hair doesn't need to be black in order for you to be human. You can vary. You can have red hair and you can and that wouldn't change your essence. Right. That wouldn't change your humanity. Your height, your height is an accidental part. The fact that I'm five foot eleven doesn't doesn't mean that I'm that I'm more human than 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 if I wasn't five foot eleven. I can be five foot eight or five foot three, and and if I was those heights, that's not going to change my essence, right? So those those so accidental parts are given to me that are that are given to me in addition to me being human. Okay, our arms or legs, those are accidental parts. I know of one man, you might have seen him before, he goes around does speaking engagements, and all he, has, all he is is a head, he's a body and a torso. He has no arms and no legs. But he still, he still contains or has his essence. Okay. Um, what I really want to nail down, though, when we talk about accidental parts, and this is going to relate to God, because we all know that God doesn't have body parts, right? Um, is our attributes. Our attributes are accidental parts. Okay. Um, when we say that we love, we don't necessarily have to love in order to be human, because we can very well hate. So love in us is not essential to us being human. It's an accidental part. Us being wise or powerful is not essential to us, because there once was a time when I wasn't wise. When I was two years old, I wasn't wise. Or when I was five, I wasn't wise, Right? Power, being powerful, is not essential to who we are. It's an accidental part, okay? These accidental parts are given in addition to our being. And these accidental parts aid to the completeness of who we are, okay? So if we change our hair color, if we somehow get shorter or taller, if we lose one or two of our legs, if we lose our ability to love, even though those are not essential to our being, even though those are accidental parts, that doesn't mean that our being wouldn't change. There wouldn't be some change in our being, okay? Um, even though the accidental, accidental parts are not essential to our being, that doesn't mean that these accidental parts, our attributes, don't contribute a bit of isness or whatness to who we are. In other words, we both need essential parts. And we need accidental parts to be the total package. Okay? We need essential parts, that being your essence and existence. And we need accidental parts in order for us to be the total package. We depend on these things. And that's the word that I want to really hit from this point out. We depend on these parts to be. We depend on these accidental parts. We depend on these essential parts to be. So in us, there's distinctions between our accidental parts and our essential parts. And those parts make up the total package. What I, this is what I'm trying to get to. Friends, you are a complex being. You think that you are simple? Well, I'm just me, you know? I got a heart, I got a head, I got arms, and I got all that. But at the, at the very core, you are complex. Or, as philosophers and older theologians would say, you are a composite. You are a composite being. You are made up of a myriad of different things, right? 
Material things, arms, legs, head, torso, chest, all those things, and immaterial things, right? Your essence and your existence. All of those things, when they are put together, make up who you are, okay? Um, but not only do you, are you made up of parts, uh, not only do you depend on the parts to be, if you didn't have the parts that you have, then you will not, you will, you will cease, you will cease to exist or you will be something that you are not if you didn't have the part. Okay. But in addition to having these things, in order, in addition to depending on these parts, you depend on a composer to put your parts together. You didn't put yourself together, right? I mean, if you did, then that's amazing. But you didn't put yourself together. You dependent on someone to put you together. Um, and I'm going to give you two examples. Think of Legos, right? Um, a box of Legos has a myriad of different parts and pieces, right? Now, when those pieces are put together, or what I should say, those Legos have the potentiality to be something that it's not, right? And usually you see at the front of the Lego box, what the, what, what the Lego will look like when all the parts are put together. It can be, I don't know, a doll or, I don't know, something, giraffe, whatever, um, <laughs> something. But um, when, when, we, when we think about Legos, right, in order for those Legos to be actualized into what it's supposed to be, someone needs to come along and put those Legos together. Those Legos don't come together on their own, right? So the Legos depend on its parts to be put together, but also the Legos depend on some composer to unite all of the parts to put them together, okay? Now, I have another illustration. Um, I was looking for a Lego, but I couldn't find a Lego. I was looking for a toy, couldn't find one, so I'm going to use this pin, okay? This pin, and can everyone see if I'm up here? Make sure I go down there. So I want you to get this. This pin is, is, even though you think it's simple, it's just a pin. It's a complex thing, okay? So what I can do with this pin is I can take its cap off, okay? I can take the other part of the pin off. If I really wanted to, I can take the tip off, okay, and set it down. And then I can spill out all the ink. If I do all of that and I set it all down, what will I have? I will no longer have a pin, right? This pin depends on things that are less than what it is in order for it to be, okay? So this pin, in order for it to function properly, depends on ink, wherever ink comes from. It depends on this tip. It depends on this other part of the pin. It depends on this cap, right? Now, if I wanted to, this pin has potentiality to be something that it's not. I can put a rubber grip on it, and it can be a, a rubber grip pin. Or I can take out the ink, and I can add red ink to it, and it can be a red ink pin. So this pin has potentiality in it, okay? This pin depends on its parts to be. But also, this pin depends on me to put it together in order for it to function properly, Okay? What we are saying is all created things depend on their being on something outside of their essence. You're, you're, you, can't will, you can't will your essence into be. Someone has to come and will your essence into existence. Right? The pen that I hold um, depends on it's parts, but also depends on someone to come alongside and put it all together in order for it to function properly. This pin is not essentially existing. This pin didn't just pop up out of nowhere. Someone put it together, and it depends on many things to exist. You are the same way. You depend on your parts to be, but also you depend on a composer someone who can come alongside or come to you and unite all of your parts together to make you the total package. 
You are, essential, you are not essentially existing. You exist by the will of God giving you your being. You are a composite, complete thing that depends on God to put you together and to give you your being. What we are saying in divine simplicity is God is not dependent on anyone to give him his being. Now, now we're going to start hitting home on the creator-creature distinction. You are dependent upon your part, and you are dependent upon a composer. God is not dependent on parts, nor is God dependent on a composer. God is self-sufficient. God doesn't, we depend on someone outside of ourselves to, outside of ourselves to, to give us who we are, to give us our being. God is not like that. God is a God is of himself. Okay. And you, maybe you remember that word from pastor Antonio. He spoke about that uh, a, a little while ago, but God is of himself. Now, l- let me just say this real quick. When we say that God is of himself, you want to be careful because we don't want to say that God is the cause of himself, that God causes himself to be okay. Like he wills his own existence to be, because if we say that God causes himself to be, then we have to ask, what was God before he caused himself to be? If we say that, then we lose the doctrine of um, absoluteness. We lose the doctrine of self-sufficiency, but also, too, we lose the doctrine of immutability because that means that there's something in God that changed. Okay? Um, So we want to say that God is of himself. God doesn't need a composer to put his parts together. Why doesn't God need a composer to put his parts together? Because God has no parts. There is no parts in God. God is simple. He is a simple being. Now to us, the way he accommodates himself to us, he has, it seems like he has parts. It seems like there's a lot of things that are going together, right? You know why? Because we can't conceive simplicity. We, we, we are complex beings, therefore we have to have complex thoughts. Therefore, the things that God, the way he accommodates himself to us is by the way of complexness, okay? God has no essential or accidental parts like we do. God is pure act. There's no potentiality in God. God is purely who he is, all that he is. There's no passive potency in God. There's no, and hear this, there's no state of actuality that awaits God. There's states of actuality that await you. You can be, you can be you today, and then next month you can be somebody totally different. That's an amen moment, that God is all that he is. There, there, God, God the, the fullness of God is all that he is. He doesn't need anything else to be. He is not like us. All that is in God is God. God is pure act. Nothing in God can be diminished or taken away, nor can anything in God be heightened or stretched out. Unlike us, God doesn't have attributes that aid to his being. Your attributes, your love and wisdom and power and all those things, those things aid to your being. Okay. the reason why uh, the reason I'm just going to bring this down to our level. The reason why a lot of us love Ben is because he's loving or because he's easy to talk to. So. You know, his easygoingness and his lovingness, right, aid to who he is. But if he didn't have those things, then would he be the same person, right? Unlike us, God doesn't have attributes that aid to his being. Rather, all of God's attributes are identical to his essence. All of God's attributes are identical to his essence. God is not the consequence of a multitude of attributes that come together and that make him what he is. So God is not, if you want to think about God's attributes, you don't want to say that, well, when you take love, when you take mercy, when you take grace, when you take sovereignty, when you take all these things, you put them together, you have God. That doesn't work that way. All that is in God is God. And if that was the case, if God is made up of his attributes, then that means that God is made up of accidental parts. But God is simple. He can't be made up of parts, right? He, can't, he, can't, he, he, he has all that he has. He's self-sufficient. God is not the result of love, justice, wisdom, and power. He is all of those attributes. God is love. God is wisdom. He is power. That is why we say God's attributes are identical with his essence. Friends, not all of your attributes are identical to your essence. 
Now, there are a few attributes that are that are essential to my being. There are a few attributes that are given um, that are given with my essence. But most of the attributes that that about me, that most of the attributes that you perceive are not given with my humanity. But there's distinctions in my being between my attributes and my essence. So if I say that God is loving or if I say that Isaiah is is loving and, and if I say that Isaiah is wise, I'm not wise and loving in and of myself. I'm only wise and loving from that attribute of wise and love and wise and love that contribute to me being wise and love. Does that make sense? There's something outside of me that gives me love. There's something outside of me, an attribute that gives me wisdom. But I'm not wisdom in and of myself. I'm not wise in and of myself. Wives, are your husbands wise in and of themselves? Uh, husbands, are your, are your, are your wives um, wise in and of themselves? No one. No, no one is all say. Only God is all say of himself. And that's, and that's what we are saying um, that when we love the way we love, the only reason we love is by virtue of an attribute called love, not in virtue of myself. God is wise and loving in virtue of God. God is wise and loving in virtue of who he is. He is those things. God doesn't love because he has an addition to his essence, a property called love. God loves in virtue of God. God is love. So to sum up this point, what are we saying? First, that God is not a composite, complete thing, a composite uh, being like we are. He's not made up of parts. God is not made up of essential parts or accidental parts or any parts at all. God's attributes don't contribute or add being to God. God is his attributes. That's an amen moment, (laughs) right? God is his attributes. He is love. And our confession says says it so beautifully. He's most wise most loving. He's the highest expression of those things because he is those things. Since God doesn't have parts like we do, God doesn't depend on his parts to be. And lastly, since God doesn't have parts, he doesn't depend on a composer like we do to put his parts together and give him existence. There's nothing in back of God that is the reason for God. Okay? God is of himself. He is self-existent, self-sufficient. Now, what's the biblical... No, let's, look, let's look at the next point. What is the biblical basis for uh, divine simplicity? The biblical basis for divine simplicity. Um, now, there are some texts that touch the doctrine of divine simplicity, and I'll mention those, but there isn't an explicit text that says that God is simple. Right? You're not going to find in the Bible that God is loving, God is holy, God is simple. Okay, rather, the way we come at this doctrine is by understanding the necessary implications of other doctrines. So the way we come at simplicity is by understanding God's eternity. God as creator. But I want to hit on the aseity of God, the aseity of God. Okay, the self-sufficiency of God. Um, Others would call this the independence of God. The doctrine of the aseity of God says that God does not derive his life from anyone or anything. God does not derive anything from anyone. Um, he is dependent upon nothing and no one for his existence. In other words, God is self-sufficient. He is all say. God is independent in his being. Our our confession says in chapter 2, paragraph 3, God having all life, all glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself. What what does he have in and of himself? All life, all glory, all goodness. He's blessed eternal, is alone in and unto himself, all sufficient, not standing in need of any of the creatures he has made, nor deriving glory from them. That is a that is a that is a wonderful definition of the aseity of God. He is self-sufficient. Romans 11:35 Paul says, "Who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? Who gives to God? Like parts give actuality to beings, right? Parts give something to beings that they don't have 
that they don't have without the parts, who gives to God? What can you give to God that God lacks? God doesn't receive anything because he doesn't lack in anything. All that is in God is God. That's divine simplicity. Isaiah 40, 14 says, whom did he consult and who had made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? God's knowledge is all say. God's knowledge is of himself. God's knowledge um, is independent. He doesn't receive knowledge from us. He doesn't receive knowledge from the world. He doesn't look at the world and he doesn't study the world and see what's going on and puts it in a little book and tries to make things happen. God's knowledge is, is independent. He has the highest form of knowledge. Not because he's simply God, though, because he knows himself. That's the highest form of knowledge one can ever obtain, knowing God, right? Our confession says that no one can understand the essence of God other than himself. God knows himself perfectly and exhaustively. God's knowledge is independent. It's all say. Hosea 14.4, God says to wicked Israel after their apostasy, I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. God's love is independent. God's love is free. Friends, you don't love freely. As much as you think you might love freely, you don't love freely. Um, as much as you husbands want to tell your wives, whisper to them, I love you freely. <laughs> husbands, you don't love your, your wives freely, right? Um, for those in here that are married or those in here that have a, a, are currently in a relationship, you don't love your godly counterpart freely or you don't love your counterpart freely. You were... You, you, didn't meet your, you didn't meet your wife and say, oh, man, I love her with all of my heart. Now, husbands, right now, this is the time to say, I did, babe. I did. He's lying. He's not talking about me. He's talking about someone else. But you didn't meet your wives and say that, or whoever you're with, I love this person. You were wooed to love that person. You were compelled to love that person. In other words, your love is not free. Your love is not dependent upon yourself. Your love depends on your counterpart. Your love depends on someone else. I loved you um, since the beginning. Um, your love for your mate is not free, but dependent upon your mate. This is the beauty of God. This is, this, this, this is what makes you worship God. This is what makes God God and, and not a creature. God's love is free. There is nothing in, in you that could have wooed God or drew God's love toward you in Adam. He loved you freely with an unconditional love. God's love is of himself. As 1 John 4, 8 says, God is love. Now, that doesn't mean, as everyone likes to say, God loves everyone. What John is saying is, the love of God, the love, or he, what, what he's saying is love and God are not separate from each other, right? That God doesn't, God doesn't need some attribute of love in order for him to love. He is love. What John here is doing, he's showing God's self-sufficiency, not depending on any parts, any attributes to cause him to love. That's one thing to contemplate at night, the love of God and and the, in the, the freeness of God and the independence of God to love sinners like you and I. Acts 17, 25, nor, has he nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life, breath, and I love everything. <laughs> he gives life, breath, everything. He gives, but he doesn't receive. I think the greatest example of, self, of the self-sufficiency of God is Exodus 3 and the scene of the burning bush. Um, in Exodus 3, we have an encounter between Moses and God. And Moses at this time has been out of Egypt for about 40 years. And in the beginning of Exodus 3, and this is a wonderful story, there's something phenomenal that turns Moses' head. Anyone know? The burning bush, right? There's something crazy that Moses sees. Whoa, does a double take. 
and there's a bush that's burning. Now, what's phenomenal about the burning bush is the bush is not being burned up. Moses has seen bramble burn before. He's seen bushes burn before, right? So that that in and of itself does not cause him to say, whoa, what's going on here? But what he's seeing is this bush is being burned up, but it's not being consumed. It's not, rather, it's not being consumed by its fire. Okay? It's, it's not burning up. It's just there. So God tells Moses through the bush that he's heard the cry of his people, that he's going to bring his people out of the hand of the Egyptians into a land flowing of milk and honey. So I pick up the story in verses 13 and 15. Through 15. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What should I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Now, that doesn't really sound like much like, okay, big deal. His name is I am. I mean, what does that mean? Right. Now, when Moses says the people are when Moses says to God, the people are going to ask me what your name is, God. He's not saying, you know, God, these Israelites are going to ask me for the secret code name. What's what is, what is it? What's the secret code name? What Moses is getting at here and, and hear this, what he's getting at here is the people are going to ask me, who are you like such that we can be confident in this promised deliverance? You see, back in this day, names, names, um, names symbolized or described a person's character. They described who this person is. So there was much meaning to a name. When the, when the people asked Moses, who is it that sent, that sent you to us? What the people are saying is, what is this God like? that we should trust him to be sufficient to do all the things that he promises to do. You're going to remove us, Moses, from the most powerful man in all of the world? Who is this God like that we can depend on him, that he can be our sufficiency? You want us to place our faith in this God? Who is this God? What's his character like? If this God is going to move us from the most powerful man in all the world, what is he like so we can depend on him to be our sufficiency? And God says to Moses, I am who I am. Tell, tell them I am who I am. What God is saying is he is that he is that he is perfectly sufficient. He is that one that is perfectly sufficient for his own existence. He's perfectly sufficient for his own um, 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 for his own being. If he is perfectly sufficient for himself, he is beyond sufficient to bring the people out of, out of Egypt. Pharaoh is not say. Pharaoh is not self-sufficient. Pharaoh needs power in order to wield the sword. Pharaoh needs his armies. Pharaoh needs weapons. Pharaoh can't do this alone. What God is saying is, I am not like the most powerful man. I am self-sufficient. I don't depend on anyone. My power is all say, right? My justice is all say. I don't need anyone. Moses, tell the people I am who I am. And it's not as if when God says that I am who I am, he's not saying that, Moses, I have a pretty good track record of keeping my word. <laughs> Look at my track record, Moses. I've, I've done pretty good through the years. But the self-sufficiency of God is bound up in the identity of God. The self-sufficiency of God is bound up in the identity of God. Who is God? Self-sufficient. There's nothing that makes God to be self-sufficient. He doesn't need, he doesn't need to have a perfect track record. And then we look at that track record and we say, okay, he's, he's good. We can depend on him. He's been self-sufficient from the start. And mind you, God never had a start. So think about when that was. Um, I think the burning bush, last thing, I think the burning bush is a perfect illustration of the simplicity of God. And here's why the burning bush. Think about the burning bush for a second. The burning bush doesn't need wood or coal to keep itself burning. 
It's not burning up, right? When Moses went to the burning bush, he didn't see a lighter. He didn't see matches. He didn't see all of, he didn't see any of those things. Moses didn't find the things that we need in order for us to start a fire. The fire is self-sufficient. Why is the fire self-sufficient? Why doesn't the fire need coal or, or, or wood or anything like that? Because God is in the fire. Because God is self-sufficient. That is why. God appears in the fire, but the fire doesn't depend on the bush, nor anything else for its fuel. It depends solely on God. The burning bush is a perfect illustration of the self-sufficiency of God. The fire doesn't depend on parts to keep itself going. It's self-sufficient. And that's what the doctrine of simplicity is saying. That parts aid to our actuality and completeness to be to our being, we depend on our parts to be. God is self-sufficient. And since God is self-sufficient, then God can't be composed. Because composite things depend on its parts, but also it depends on some composer to be. What we are saying is since God is self-sufficient, he doesn't need, nor does he have any parts. There's nothing in God that lacks. There's no one that stands behind God that gives him his being. There's no reason for God other than himself. God is wholly other than us. Now, I know all of this sounds strange. Um, and a lot of this sounds metaphysical, right? But try the opposite on. Let's suppose that God is made up of parts. What happens? Let's suppose that God is like you and I, and he's made up of, he has accidental parts, and he has essential parts. What's at stake if we lose this doctrine? Friends, if, if, if that's the case, if God is made up of parts, then your trust in God goes out the window. Why do I say that? Because the reality is you should really be trusting in the parts that make God to be who he is. You don't trust in God alone, but you trust in God plus the parts because God needs them. He depends on them. If your faith is, if your faith in God, um, if you have faith in God, but God depends on, on what is not God in order for him to be God, then your faith is misdirected. You should trust in God's parts. You should trust in the composer that put all of God's parts together, Right? If we say that God is built up of parts, then we must place our faith in whoever put the parts together in God. And just to think, just hear about, I mean, to think that God, the one who created all things, had a composer to put everything together. To think that there's someone behind God that makes God to be God, or even to think that there's something in God that makes God to be God, is quite scary. That means that God is not self-sufficient. He's not self-sufficient for us because he's not even self-sufficient for his own self. He needs parts, right? If we lose the doctrine of divine simplicity, we lose, if we lose the unique oneness of God, then we lose that valuable, fundamental, creator-creature distinction. That's what happens if we lose simplicity. We lose the creator-creature distinction. If we lose divine simplicity, then God is more like his creation and less like their creator. That's what happens. And I don't know about you, but I don't want God to be like me. I want God to be wholly simple and is and all that he is. And that's the problem in theology in, in theology proper now in the study of God in, is in wanting a God that's near us in wanting a God that understands us. We make God like us. Stephen Charnock says that although we can't comprehend God for who he is, we must not fancy him to be what he is not. We, we have to be careful when we speak about God. And, and that's what the doctrine of divine simplicity does. It, it, mis, it, it totally rethinks everything you thought about God. And it, it creates more of that chasm that exists between the creator and the creature. Um, if we lose, lastly, if we lose the doctrine of divine uh, simplicity, then we lose the absoluteness of God. We lose the self-sufficiency of God. Friends, this is why the doctrine of divine simplicity regulated the grammar of all that we say about God for 1,700 years. This is why it was foundational. This is why it was step one in your theology proper classes. Because a lot rides on it. If we lose God's simplicity, we lose God. Okay, last point. Um, 
what's the comfort in God in God's simplicity? Um, what's the comfort in this doctrine? I said that this doctrine is is a doctrine that we can rest our head on at night. Um, what are the practical applications of this doctrine? How do we live in light of this doctrine? I'm just going to tell you this right now. Uh, as long as we, we, I, I do these uh, Doctrine of God lessons on Wednesday, my application is going to be the same every single time. We worship God. That's what we do in light of this doctrine. We worship a simple God who is not in need of any, who is self-sufficient. How do we live in light of this doctrine? We worship God. We worship the God who is love, who's most loving, whose love does not derive from some attribute called love, but his love is free. His love is independent. His love is all say. His love is of himself. How can you know that God's love and mercy for, for you will not change or be nullified? Because God is identical with his attributes. God is identical with his attributes. He, can no, he, can, he could no more fail to love than he could fail to be. If all that is in God is God, then none of his attributes can change, diminish, or disappear. That God's love for you will, will not change next year. God's grace toward you will not change in two weeks. But God is immutable. All that is in God is God. His love can't hyphen or, or, or go away. God is eternal. Therefore, everything in him is eternal. God's love for you has been eternal. And we don't even have a conception of eternity. So just think about when that was. I love what Herman Bothing says. He says, you want to know, you want to know, you want to know a great comfort in the love of God and the, the love that God has for you? The comfort that we have that God loves us is he never began to love us. That's the comfort. God is, God is self-sufficient. He is awesome. God is simple. Um, Jeremiah, God says in Jeremiah 31.3, I have loved you with an everlasting love. The doctrine of divine simplicity brings us much comfort for it tells us that God is not made up of parts that are less than who he is. He doesn't depend on his parts for his being, nor does he depend on some composer to put him together. Everything in God is God. God is self-sufficient. In Exodus 3, when God tells Moses to go to Egypt and tell Pharaoh, let God's people go, Moses says to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children out of Israel, or out of Egypt? Bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. And God's response here is, is unique. God doesn't say, Moses, come on, man. You have untapped resources. Your destiny is just around the corner. You know, you, you, you're more than a conqueror. He doesn't tell, them, tell him that. He essentially agrees with Moses. He says, but I will be with you. Moses says, I don't, I'm not ready for this. But God says, but I will be with you. Moses, and, and I think God is saying this, Moses, I know you're not sufficient for this task but I will be your sufficiency. I know you're not ready for this, but I will be with you. I will be your sufficiency because I'm my own sufficiency. If I can carry myself, you think that I can't carry you? How can God say that he will be all that Moses needs to accomplish the task that God gave him to do? Because God is I am. That's the reason. Because God is, I am. God is of himself. How can you, saints, if, you're, if, if you come tonight struggling, wondering about God and his love and his mercy and his kindness toward you, how can you be sure that God will be with you all the days of your life? How can you be sure that God will not cease to be all that he is? How can you be sure that God will provide and sustain you through whatever you're going through? Think about what he told Moses. Because God is I am. That's why. You don't need a self-help book. You don't need an hour-long sermon. Just contemplate on the self-sufficiency of God. God is I am. God is not dependent on no one. God is simple. God is self-sufficient. And since God is self-sufficient for himself, you can trust and you can rest assured, saints, that God will be sufficient for you.
God will strengthen you in all the things that you lack. And God will sustain you in all the things that you don't have in and of yourself. Saints, in light of the truth of the simplicity of God, what do we do? We worship God for who he is. And we desire to glorify him and to obey him evermore. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for bringing us here by your grace once again. I pray that although that was complex, I pray that your spirit helped your people understand better who you are, that you are not like us, that you are not made up of parts, nor do you need a composer to put you together. Lord, I thank you for not being like me. I thank you for being of yourself. I thank you for not depending on anyone. You are the self-sufficient, holy God. And I give you all the praise and glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.